0: I'm going to stay seated right here, so thank you, Risa Dean Galuba, for that fabulous introduction uh, to Common Law Grounds and our goals for the day. I'm going to just add a little to that, and then I am going to introduce the four panelists I have up here and turn it over to them. So uh, in case you don't know me, I'm Deborah Hellman, and I'm a faculty member here at the law school, and I'm also the faculty advisor to Common Law Grounds. And in case any of you are new to, if you're one else or new to common law grounds, I just wanted to say a teeny bit more about what it is. I think you got a flavor of that already though from Dean Goluboff. So just a little um, excerpt from our mission statement, the mission is to encourage discussion and debate among students and faculty across the ideological spectrum with the goal of identifying and articulating areas of agreement about core values and practices, isolating points of substantive disagreement while also looking for common ground and fostering a culture of open and civil dialogue about legal and political issues. I want to say a little something about why I think that's so important. I have a colleague whose research focuses on um, the way in which a lot of countries have very rights protective or democracy uh, enhancing constitutions and yet the lived experience in those countries is quite different from what you would think mm-hmm. from looking at the constitution. I think those uh, that research shows us or helps to illustrate that the constitution is really just a piece of paper. It's just a parchment structure or barrier without the norms, culture, uh, cultural practices and values that sustain it. I like to call those set of things the kind of cultural constitution. And what I see Common Law Grounds doing or its role is to strengthen and deepen and help to articulate what are the norms and practices that make up the cultural constitution here in the United States. Clearly, freedom of the press is part of the the paper constitution. Um, It's obviously part of uh, the First Amendment. But to fulfill the important role that the press plays in our constitutional structure, more is needed for that freedom to be more than the parchment barrier. So what are the norms and practices adhered to both by those who work in journalism as well as all of us as consumers, readers, thinkers about it that make up that cultural constitution that allows the freedom of the press to play the role that it needs to play in our democracy. Okay, with that, I will introduce our journalists. The order we're gonna go in is the order you see here and we'll start with Richard Levy, Richard Levy is, the senior editor, is a senior editor and writer at the Washington Post, where he's covered politics, culture, the military, and intelligence communities, and foreign affairs for 25 years, reporting from Washington and around the world. He's written from Gaza, Egypt, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and served for one and a half years as the paper's Pakistan bureau chief, based in Islamabad. Libby also periodically helmed the the post-Kabul Bureau covering the war and the troubled uh, Afghanistan-Pakistan relationship. He's a native of Pennsylvania, earned his bachelor's degree in journalism from Temple University and taught journalism at uh, at GW's School of Media and Public Affairs. He's won various writing awards um, and was the Knight-Wallace Fellow in Investigative Reporting at the University of Michigan in 2000-2001. In his editing career, he supervised and edited two projects that became Pulitzer Prize finalists in feature writing. I'm going to introduce all of the the folks and then uh, we'll just, I I think that's a good way. Next to me is Robert Blau, or Bob Blau. He's the executive editor, um, an executive editor at Bloomberg News. Blau has uh, carved an eclectic path up the journalistic ranks after a stint freelancing to being a freelance writer about music. He was hired in 1985 by the Chicago Tribune, where his first job was reviewing the movies that Gene Siskel, the paper's famed critic, didn't want to. (laughs) He moved on to the crime beat, capturing the, uh, the experience in a memoir, The Cop Shop. Later, as an investigative reporter, he covered everything from mobsters in Chicago to the plight of impoverished children in Cambodia. Following a Nieman Fellowship at Harvard in 1997, Blau assembled the Tribune's Projects team, which produced a burst of outstanding work. The team's body of work on the criminal justice system was largely responsible for the moratorium on capital punishment in Illinois, won numerous national awards, and sparked similar investigations across the country. Gateway to gridlock about the failures of the airline industry was awarded the 2001 Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting. Blau then served as managing editor of the Baltimore Sun, which is when I met him. Blau joined Bloomberg News in 2008 and has helped lead its push into global public service journalism. He joined the Pulitzer Prize board in the fall of 2011. To my right is Paige Lavender from the Huffington Post. She's the senior politics editor and assignment editor at HuffPost. She's a West Virginia native, lover of pepperoni rolls, a gardener and has a. I wonder if this puppy is still a puppy. She's two now. Yeah, this is an outdated <laughs> bio, but she has a dog named Pickle. <laughs> she, she graduated from American University with a master's degree in interactive journalism in 2016, um, and uh, she. Did I? Uh, did I get? No, she graduated with a bachelor's degree in news editorial journalism and a minor in English, and in 2011 from that was American University, and this is West Virginia. I jumped ahead. Um, she's uh, participated in uh, symposia at Reed College and in the festival of in the school's festival of ideas, and she also participates in mentorship of college students looking to go into journalism. The last on the right is Peter Hassan, who is the associate, an associate editor at the Daily Caller. Peters worked uh, as a campus correspondent. Um, he says exposing liberal bias uh, in the, uh, across the country and I love that this is in the bio because I think it's one of the things that w- the topic of the symposium of bubbles and biases and I think it's something that's uh, a topic that we'll be talking about is what is bias in the media? How do we identify bias in the media, etc.? cetera, um, uh, while he was at the University of Dallas. He's worked, his work has been featured by Fox News, Hot Air, and the Drudge Report, among others. In addition to his work with uh, Campus Forum, Peter has also previously written for the Federalist, the Collegiate News uh, Network Newslink and the Dallas Morning News. And I will say, in addition, he has the distinction of being the brother of one of our students here uh, at the (laughs) University of Virginia. And I am so thrilled to welcome all four of you, and I appreciate your taking the time and the energy to come down. So we'll begin with Rich.
1: Okay, Thank you, Professor Hellman. Um, My bio is a little outdated. I recently earned a promotion I want to discuss. Um, I was put in charge of the fake news desk at the Washington Post. It's uh, i mean, it's a huge operation. We have to produce fake news 24-7. Now, under me are four sub-editors whose work I supervise. First, there's the Department of Blowing Things Out of Proportion. Um, This is a place where veterans of journalism are welcome because we have blown things out of proportion for a long time. Uh, We're proud of it. One small development, even if spurious or meaningless, can become a huge headline. An incremental point in a poll can become a huge headline. Anything can be blown out of proportion. In fact, I had the editor install one of those uh, garage air hoses under his desk to just give something a little more lift if needed. Um, That piece on Ivanka Trump's high heels comes to mind. That, that did attain some altitude, completely fake. Um, but it's also good to have internet experience because, you know, when you scroll your phone, these headlines come in like rolling breakers, crashing news, and you don't know how significant they are, okay? Well, that's part of our job is to mash them all together so you're not really sure. Um, who saw that whale in the hurricane? Uh, drenched streets of that city. Was that whale well real? It might have been, doesn't really matter. Look, nobody reads anymore. Um, I get texts from my kids that say, T-L-D-R, too long, didn't read, thanks kid. Okay. <laughs> now, really working in conjunction with the blowing out of a portion desk is the taking things out of context editor. Um, you can't really do the two uh, alone. So, a snippet of a quote is, is a thing we usually take out of context. Um, we might even take a whole sentence out of context, and we can take a couple of sentences out of context if we sort of like cutting away the sandbags from a balloon. The, the quote will move, will move up, and you'll find it more significant than it is. I think you've seen that. So, there's a big flap this week. President Trump allegedly said to Le David, uh, Master Sergeant La David Johnson's widow who was, quote, must have known what he signed up for. How many times did you see that quote? Okay, do we know anything about the context for that? We know what others said the context was, but we don't have a tape. I don't think we're going to see a tape. So we don't, we can't be completely sure what was going on. And of course, the controversy that has emerged around that has been uh, considerable. Just this morning, Fox News uh, reported that, the, that uh, General Kelly, the Chief of Staff, excoriated the libs for uh, weaponizing the, uh, the, si- the situation with the dead soldiers, politicizing and weaponizing. Now, we on the Out of Context desk might point out that Donald Trump first mentioned Barack Obama, but but again, we don't want that context all the time. Um, So then below that division is the division of anonymous sourcing, okay? The president doesn't like anonymous sources, and truth be told, we have very, very strict rules at the Washington Post about what we can use for an anonymous source. Um, I discuss those rules, but we have to go off the record. Um, Are we honest brokers? Perhaps. But I can tell you from my experience that editors will attempt to weed out named sources in favor of sources who will give malicious and scandalous quotes. Why? Out of context, division loves them. See how it all feeds together. Um, Then we have the most important part of the desk, and that's the Department of Donald Trump. Um, You know, we have 34 dedicated staff members. Well, actually, I think as of this morning, it's 37, devoted just to parsing the Donald's tweets. Um, And I'm always asking my assistants, how can we blow this out of proportion, okay? (laughs) Well, we got at least 140 characters. We got to work with that. Um, So the president says, workers of firm involved with discredited and fake dossier take the fifth. Who paid for it? Russia, the FBI, or the Dems, or all? The FBI, an internal what fifth column working against the president? Give me that air hose. That's what we got to get in the paper. Okay. Um, All right, so you've probably gotten, although this can go up on the internet as as fact, (laughs) uh, this bit of satire uh, is to illuminate that fake news has become part of our lexicon, and it's a serious business. Um, Yes, I've been at the Post for 26 years, uh, long enough to have been hired by Ben Bradley, who um, was the legendary editor during Watergate? Um, but you have, and you do have to go back, I think, to the history of Watergate and Richard Nixon to find a president who so publicly loathed the press. I think other presidents loathed the press. They didn't just say it publicly. Um, and, and do, but during Watergate, I mean, the Nixon partisans aside, I think. Public had a fairly healthy respect for the press. Um, there were not there were sorry there were bumper stickers seen around Washington. Somebody put them together that said "God Bless the Washington Post." During that era, um, now totally different. Okay, there was a, a story this week that came from Politico. It said, "quote Nearly half of all voters, 46 percent." believe the news media fabricate news stories about President Donald Trump. Half of the people, okay? Um, Just 37% think the media does not fabricate stories. Okay, thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Then looking at bias, three-fourths of the uh, public thinks the media is biased. Okay, But alternately and importantly, three-fourths of the the public also thinks the media plays a very important role in keeping politicians accountable. So somewhere in here, we're doing a bad job, but we're also doing a good job. Okay. So this tension takes me back to a guy who was kind of famous around here. Tom Jefferson, Um, when Jefferson, you know, gave us the founding documents, he made sure that these included the First Amendment, okay? And he said famously, were it left for me to decide whether we should have government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. But I should mean that every man, should receive these papers and be capable of reading them. So an educated electorate, literate electorate was important. On the other hand, Mr. Jefferson would go on to evolve his opinion of the press. He later said, nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. At that point, he was approaching his presidency and his critics were ascendant. And it was during his second term in 1806 that Jefferson wrote to a Massachusetts congressman, quote, as for what is not true, you will find an abundance in the newspapers. And in 1814, he said, I deplore with you the putrid state into which our newspapers have passed and the malignity, malignity, and vulgarity and the mendacious spirit of those who write for them. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. And finally, quote, I rarely think them worth reading and almost never worth notice. So it always depends on whose ox is being gored, okay? I don't think we've had a president um, to holds again, such low esteem of the press, dishonest enemies of the people uh, go on and on. But Jefferson, at least, as historians have pointed out, throughout his um, uh, time in politics, did believe that the press reser- uh, deser- deserved a, a sort of uh, protection. Okay, That doesn't seem to be the cli- climate in Washington today where the press is under constant threat. And I mean constant. Now, it's how much you take Donald Trump at his word that he wants to, quote, uh, open up the libel laws, which of course he can't do because he's not the Supreme Court, or um, any other manner of restrictions or prosecutions, we, we, we've yet to see. But we're only in the first year, first nine months of the first term, um, and there may be a second. So for the media, these are kind of rough times.
2: But, and this is my AV
1: portion of the program, um, I believe that journalism will always prevail because people will make movies about it. Um, and there's one that uh, I watched that really reminded me of, of how the, um, the press got its bad reputation it's from 1949, it's called Scandal Sheet, and i like to play an excerpt.
0: You can feel free to stand at the podium where there's a mic if that's oh, okay. easier for you.
3: Who is she? Jane Doe. Nobody knows her real name. The police think she slipped in the bathtub and bashed her head in. Or they didn't a little while ago. But you know better all the time. After Dr. O'Hanlon got through cutting her up for me, she died between nine and twelve last night. Before she went under in the tub, no water in her lungs. Did he find anything else? Yeah, her killer was a man, middle-aged, fair complexion, had brown hair. Well, Hamlin found that scraping under her fingernails. You ran into this just by playing a hunch, huh? Um, just
1: to explain this, the um, the young man explaining to his editor a murder victim he's found. Okay. The victim was a participant in a newspaper-sponsored Lonely Hearts Club event, okay, the previous night. So in order to to boost its sales, they put together this Lonely Hearts event. And now she's been, now a victim has been found dead.
3: Oh, a string from a Lonely Heart badge was on her dress in the closet. The badge had been torn off. I followed through from there. Well, is this a story? This lonely heart murdered after the ball? Can you sell papers with this? Back to Jordan Allison. Get in here right away. They didn't know her name. You said. Kelly's uh, out. Jane Jones. How funny can you get? We've just been struck by lightning. It's a great follow-up of the Lonely Hearts Ball. Tell them about it, Steve. We'll call her Miss Lonely Heart. No other name. Alone in the city. Friendless. She went to our shindig last night hunting for a soulmate. Maybe she found one. The wrong one. Anyway, she left early. And sometime before midnight, she was beaten to death in her room by a brown-haired, middle-aged man of fair complexion. <whistles> a smash follow-up is right. The killer had a head full of brains. Good nerves. He lugged her to the bathroom. Stripped her. Tossed the body in the tub. No. No, he stood the body in the tub. Aimed, let go. Bang, your head cracks the faucet. Almost perfect crime. Ordinary accident. He's working smartly. A guy with imagination. He takes her slip, stockings, washes them, hangs them up to dry. He wipes his prints off everywhere. Starts getting rid of anything that could identify her. He took a ring off her, probably a wedding or engagement ring. How do you know that? Oh, a whitey circle, third finger left hand. Oh, Hamlet spotted it at the morgue. All right, go on. What? Go on. Well, he grabs any other personal items that might identify her and throws them in her suitcase and blows. How do you know she's got a suitcase? Every dame's got a suitcase. But there wasn't one in Miss Lonely Heart's room. This'll pick up the circulation. We can make the five o'clock edition exclusive. Steve can do the lead story. Jordan, I won three column cuts of the dame's picture at the ball and the murder photo. Allison, write me a sob story. Miss Lonely Heart won't be lonely anymore. Fine job, Steve. Sure, it's a great job, but we're going to top it. How? Bury her. Bury her? The best story I ever dug up in E. Thompson. Five o'clock tonight, Miss Lonely, I will be selling newspapers for us in every street corner in Manhattan. Now, go on, get going. It's all right. Or she did, it's all right. But she didn't get married last night.
1: So they, um, they say, you're only writing this story to sell newspapers. Yes, indeed. Uh, the twist to this particular plot, why I wanted you to see it a little bit more in full, was uh, the editor is the murderer. Okay? So... A classic noir, if you ever want to watch the whole thing. Sorry to issue a spoiler, but it's still working. <laughs> uh, then there's another um, classic, starring Humphrey Bogart, 1952, that I hope you're all familiar with. <laughs>
3: What about the Rienzi story, George? Boss wants to check it first. One column had three line back.
4: A piece says the paper's being sold. What? So? Who to? When? What about that, Frank?
3: That's something only the garrisoners. Hutchison and the gods have told, not us.
4: It's a conspiracy
0: to keep you just as you are. Nice and ignorant.
5: So I can't believe it.
4: Don't believe the Associated Press? My, my. Better run for your life.
1: So the backstory here. Humphrey Bogart is the editor of a crusading newspaper called The Sun. And the Sun, um, because of a newspaper war in New York uh, and other reasons has been sold. Alright, so this is, they're gonna put out the last edition. Meanwhile, there was a reference to the Rienzi story, okay, and the copy aid says uh, boss wants to check it first. Alright, so the boss has particular interest in the Rienzi story. The Rienzi story is um, going to animate a lot of the plot we get to the very end and um I'll move it ahead 1
5: hour I go on something I ride all day I think
4: By doing this, you may be in danger, like your son.
5: You're not afraid. Your paper's not afraid. I am
4: not afraid. Hello, Mrs. Hutchison. Or is it Mrs. Schaefer now? Where is he? In the press room.
3: He lost the paper. Yes. What's he gonna
4: do? Get out the last edition, and it ought to be quite a paper.
3: But then what?
4: Look for another job, I guess. Is it, Mrs. Schaefer. Hello, Alex. This is it, huh? Yeah, looks like the last one. Yes, who put the call through Hutchison? Hello, baby. How am I feeling? I hear Mrs. Schmidt come in to see you. That's right. That's right. There's some loose cash here belongs to you. $200,000 worth. Uh Uh-huh, and there's something else, too. What diary? Who's gonna believe what a little tramp writes to herself? Wait a minute, don't hang up. Here's some advice for your friend. Don't press your luck. Lay off of me. Don't print that story. What's that supposed to be? An order? If not tonight, then tomorrow. Maybe next week, maybe next year. But sooner or later, you'll catch it. Listen to me. Print that story, you're a dead man. It's not just me anymore. You'd have to stop every newspaper in the country now, and you're not big enough for that job. People like you've tried it before, with bullets, prison, censorship. As long as even one newspaper will print the truth, you're finished. Don't give me that fancy double-talk. I want an answer. Yes or no? Yes or no? Hey, Hutchison? That noise, what's that racket? That's the press, baby, the press. And there's nothing you can do about
1: it, nothing. One of the greatest endings <laughs> of a newspaper uh, movie, um, Ramsey is a gangster, okay? And Please response- Just use the mic so oh. everyone can hear, thanks. Uh, just the back though. Ramsey is a gangster, and um, uh, he killed this girl. Okay, and it was the mother who came in in the beginning and said, "I'm not afraid. You're not afraid. Your newspaper's not afraid." Uh, the the parable is obvious. We need a press it's not afraid. And then the, the last clip uh, is from a movie made about my newspaper. Several years ago, and I'll set this up. There's these guys named Woodward and Bernstein who who uh, broke a story about, you know, the president's operation to um, to shut down, you know, not only Democrats but a lot of other uh, uh, organs of, you know, the democracy. Um, they happened to screw up fairly badly on one story while they were doing all this digging. Um, meanwhile, things have gotten really tough for the Post. The Post is at this point in time, uh, was, was was going public or had just gone public. Um, it had FCC licenses that had to be renewed uh, for stations, for TV stations. And the... Word was that they would not be renewed, okay, this be bad for the Post. Incidentally, Trump just brought this up the other day, didn't he? He wanted to to, to pull the FCC license of NBC News. Unfortunately, NBC News is a network. It doesn't have a license. He didn't know that, Um, kind of of like the libel laws. Um, But we'll watch. This is when they come to pay a visit to the editor of the Post, their editor, Ben Bradley. Played
4: by Jason Robards in his pajamas. Couldn't you tell me I would have says phones aren't safe. I can't trust him.
1: Come
3: on in. We can't come inside. Woodward says electronic surveillance.
4: she's doing it's it it's being done people's lives are in danger maybe minute. even ours what happened to that justice source of yours
3: well I guess I made the instructions too complicated because he thought I said hang up when I just
4: said hang on oh
3: Jesus. the story is right Alderman was the fifth name to control that fund and Sloan would have told the grand jury Sloan wanted to tell the grand jury why didn't he because nobody, he asked. nobody asked him the cover up had little to do with the break-in it was to protect covert operations and the covert
4: activities involved the entire US intelligence community did Deep Throat say that People's lives are in danger. Yes. What else did he say? He said everyone is involved. You know the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home get a nice hot bath, rest up 15 minutes, and get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment, the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm gonna get mad.
1: part. Um, We're we're at a sort of crossroads in the country right now, from where I stand anyway. Uh, We're going to be called fake news, whether we're fake news or not. So how do we respond to that? We hew to our principles that we've always hewed to as journalists, which is, First of all, don't pay attention to these attacks. Secondly, knowing we're in a dangerous place, report our stories as rigorously as possible so that they're not open to challenge, okay? We can't invade that responsibility. We have to be fair and, yes, balanced in what we do because this is a dangerous time. Nothing's riding on it except the First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press and maybe the future of the country. And to paraphrase Van Bradley, we better not screw it up.
0: Thank you.
5: Thanks, Next Rich. Um, it's a real, real pleasure to be here um, and a real privilege You know, I just want to—I want to pick up on one thought because the movies—they show um, in their in their black and white um, palette uh, the the sort of raucous nature of a newsroom, which is exactly how it should be when a newsroom operates the way that it should. They're they're places of great debate um, and great diversity though, they haven't always been uh, as diverse as they they need to be. Um, But microcosmically, a a really great forum for for hashing out the news of the day and the opinions of the day. Um, But the other element that is suggested in in these clips and I think is worth worth lingering on for, for just a minute is the incredible amount of courage that is called for uh, to practice journalism in its highest form, and um, you know we got glimpses of, of Humphrey Bogart in his bow tie, um, and I think there are scenes in All the President's Men of Bradley in probably the same tuxedo, um, uh, and but but really as it, as its practice on the ground by the journalists who stake everything to bring the news forward. often under enormous pressure and under enormous personal cost that helps yield some of the most important stories of our time. Uh, I'll come back to that, but I did want to just say that at the outset. Um, It really is a a time of great anguish for members of the press, but also a time of great reinvigoration and renewal. On the one hand, we're being subjected to the most sustained, high-profile, and vitriolic, extra-legal attack in a very long time, led by none other than the President of the United States. On the other hand, the demand for high-quality journalism that places a premium on accountability, that exposes wrongdoing, that names names, is equally impassioned. The winner of this battle that is typically played out as a spirited civil tug of war, but that has descended into a bloody cage match, will go a long way to determining the shape, tenor, and durability of our democracy. So far, if you're a fan of a free independent press, the signs are at once terrifying, but also encouraging. So here was the opening salvo um, that ricocheted around social media. by way of Twitter. The fake news media is not my enemy, it's the enemy of the American people, so said the president. There was Kellyanne Conway insisting on the importance of alternative facts when Sean Spicer fabricated the number of attendees at the inauguration. The cries of fake news came daily and come daily and incite a large audience (coughs) of people who no longer agree on basic facts. Without hesitation, with great ferocity, the very legitimacy of reporting has been called into question. So that's the central challenge, but there are also other challenges. There are the verbal and physical abuses of journalists while carrying out their jobs, a trend that has only intensified. There are the mob threats at various protests, the profane salutes. There was the Guardian reporter body slammed by the congressman from Montana. And there's the threat to remove broadcast licenses. The son of a journalist who was slain in Malta last week observed, this is what happens when the institutions of the state are incapacitated. The last person left standing is often a journalist. Even if we haven't achieved the ultraviolence of other places, including other Western democracies like Malta, I think it's appropriate for those of us in the media to ask how this remarkable shift came about. And I don't think it's simply the result of a sharper, more hostile rhetoric that's emanating from the current administration, we do have a lot to account for. We have a bad record. We get things wrong, and we get big things wrong. Most recently, our inability to read carefully enough the simmering frustration among among a growing number of Americans. The election itself. And even more, the mistakes of judgment are more serious and systemic problems that were decades in the making. We grew farther and farther from the subjects that we pledged to cover. We became captive to sources. We grew, we grew comfortable as Washington insiders and literati. We lost touch. We took cheap shots. We chased clicks. We were biased. I'm starting to feel like this is one of those confessions on you before. <laughs> there was plenty of resentment to Uncork, and it has been. All the while, the economic foundation of journalism was eroding, making it more difficult, more burdensome to produce the kind of original, deep reporting that would help people when they needed it the most. That's another challenge, and it isn't going away. <clears throat> and then there are also the tactical challenges. Though it's overrated, there is less access to the president and his cabinet. There are fewer public documents available. There are no visitor logs. Agency data is being repressed. And where are the tax returns? Um, Despite all these challenges, this battle over credibility, honesty, and transparency is far from over. This is truly a test of the media's intentions and its ability, and it's a test that even in the past year has generated some surprising results. Just consider the past few weeks. Travelgate, the opioid story that the Washington Post had so much to do with, sexual harassment, Public officials and celebrities have been torpedoed by the accumulation of hard-to-find facts. Tom Price at HHS, Tom Marino was on deck as drug czar, Harvey Weinstein, a story that had been hiding in plain sight for decades, but through an incredible repertorial effort, placed it in front of the public um, really with indisputable certainty and authority. And the results came quickly and decisively. Right here in Charlottesville, there was a different kind of media victory. And I'm referring specifically to the 22-minute documentary by Vice News after a young reporter embedded with the neo-Nazi protesters. Stark, undeniable, powerful. But most importantly, it exposed the lies of shared responsibilities and false equivalencies. And that video has been viewed over 50 or 60 million times, I think, I know I've lost count. Um, s- subscriptions at places like The Post and The Times are increasing, donations to nonprofits are up. In recent polling, to look at the bright side, uh, shows improvement in the public, um, the public appreciation of the press, though. Let's not be naive about it, as you point out, Rich. Um, I think in that very same poll, it showed that something over 70% of Republicans believed the media was fabricating stories about the president. So there may not be a simple answer to the swirl of lies that has inundated public discourse. But for journalism, the antidote is pretty clear. Deep, committed reporting that lays out the facts with clarity and authority. And that pushes it back against ignorance and deception and perhaps move, moves them just a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm going to stop Thank you. Paige. Um,
2: thank you. Uh, I've loved all these remarks so far. Um, as she mentioned, I have two degrees in journalism, which many people would think is a huge waste of time and money. <laughs> um, but I'm endlessly fascinated with how the media has evolved and how journalists operate. Uh, help the interaction with public officials go, I mean, that's something that I've studied. Um, but with the nature of my job, um, primarily what I do at HuffPost is breaking news, and, and a lot of that is clearly focused on politics because politics is, you know, the realm of where most breaking news happens, I think. Um, so I kind of have a different perspe- perspective on things because my day-to-day job is really rooted in immediacy. Uh, you know, it's very much in the moment, and so, there's not a lot of time for decision making and there's not a lot of time to sort of uh, you know think about all of the things that have been mentioned so far it's just like you have to get the basic facts out there which you would think would be very simple and and you know when you're working in basic facts you would you would think there's not a lot of debate over right and wrong and how people are going to perceive you and whether or not you're going to come across as unbiased and and whatever but the you know before we came here I was thinking a lot about the topic of this panel and I think the bottom line is that context and perception are everything even when you're just working with you know factual mm-hmm. stories um, I think uh, journalists, editors and publishers you know should come together to come up with standards and approaches for how to tell stories in a truthful and objective way uh, but there are even problems with that. <laughs> I hate to be such a downer and say that we're, there's problems no matter how we how much we talk about this but Um, you know, you just can't please everyone. Everybody has a different perception based on their life experiences and their morals and their political views. Uh, So there's always going to be some conflict, I think, between reporting the truth and being seen as impartial. I don't think you're ever going to be seen as 100% objective by 100% of people when people are reading your work. Um, I'm I'm glad you brought up alternative facts. I really don't want to get into that territory, um, but I do think that people have really different understandings of what truth is, uh, and so when I'm working every day, especially when it comes to breaking news, that's just something that I try to be very aware of, um, you know, you try to mine all the information that you can to present, you know, a lot of what I'm thinking is just presenting the bare bone facts to people when a story breaks, because, you know, it, it, when, when you see a news alert on your phone, like, you just want to know, like, tell me what's happening right now. And there's definitely room for analysis and deep reporting that comes after that. Um, but the context of a story can mean so much. Um, I know we've all talked about Trump up here. He's the big elephant in the room. Um, but if you take his tweets, for example, uh, you can never just say Trump tweeted this. You know, which would be a factual statement, no context, no bias, and have people read that as you know a straightforward news story. Everyone's going to have their own take on it. Um, one one example that comes to mind is when Trump tweeted that transgender individuals weren't going to be allowed to serve in the military anymore. So if you say you know Trump announced this on Twitter today you're immediately going to have people with their own thoughts about that situation and then even as you add more straightforward facts to it, um, that particular story you know CNN quickly reported after that Trump didn't uh, talk to his Joint Chiefs of Staff before making that decision. So if you report that you're going to have one Portion of the United States thinking, like, how the hell do you make that decision without talking to your joint chiefs of staff? And then you have a whole other part of the United States thinking, well, he's the president. Of course, he can make that decision on his own. You know, why does he need to talk to them? So, without even really offering, you know, your own spin on it or or like context from experts or whatever, just just repeating that report uh, puts in people's minds sort of like a you know a, a bias really based on how they view his role in the White House and, and what they think his authority should be. Uh, if you go even beyond that, and you mentioned that in 2016 the Pentagon rolled back the ban on trans transgender individuals in the military, you know, that's a factual statement. There's really no spin on that as far as I can tell. Uh, but some people are gonna say, well, that was an Obama thing, you know, Obama did that, it doesn't really matter now. Like why would they have done that to begin with? And then you have a whole other portion of people who are gonna say, you know, well, of course we're going to flip it around. You know, it's just even when you're working in facts, people are going to bring their own biases to the news. And so I think that's something that uh, I'm trying to be conscious of every day as I write stories and as I, you know, interact with people and talk to sources and gather facts and report the news. Um, And I hate to, like I said, I hate to be such a downer on this panel. I would like to think that you know, objective reporting uh, can shed light on these things and and allow people to see things in the most truthful, most truthful way, Uh, but I do think a lot of, uh, you know, sort of an unsolvable problem almost is that people's perception, you know, is their own and, you know, the media can be as truthful as we can and report facts in the most unbiased way Um, and, and, and the media can decide, you know, I think all of us probably have different ideas of what's important to tell people when it comes to any given story uh but the fact of the matter is it's really up to people who ingest that the readers and the viewers of video and the listeners of podcasts to sort of uh put their own interpretation on it so uh, it's a really complicated issue and i'm excited to hear more about it today <laughs> thank you
6: uh, so i'm awful with microphones, so bear uh, with me here. Um, I, uh, I, on top of that, I've not updated my bio from my, <laughs> since my, uh, my senior year of college, so um, I appreciate you guys saying hear me talk anyway. <laughs> um, uh, being, I think the most serious challenge facing journalism right now is a lack of trust. Um, I think you see that in the poll that showed um, Uh, 46% of people think the press invents stories about the president and 72% of Republicans think that and only 37% uh, are sure that the press does not invent stories, which the press doesn't invent stories about the president. Um, But I I, I think there's a real underlying um, there's a real underlying uh, problem there, and that uh, a large segment of the country does not trust the press to tell them the whole story, um, you know, and uh, particularly people on the right, um, which is, you know, it's, it can be a challenge to it has someone who, who writes for the right to um, kind of have to walk that line. Um, you know, we, uh, we, uh, we actually were the first outlet to, to, um, The news on, on, on Mike Flynn's uh, Turkish lobbying connections, um, and you know, our, our readers did not—they were not a fan of that story. They didn't like it, um, which you know, especially in the, on the online age, um, you know, there really is an incentive to give your readers exactly what they want. Uh, because that's what people are going to share on Facebook, that's what people are going to share on Twitter. Um, and so there, there really is um, uh, a line you have to walk between uh, being able to bring the facts to people, because if people don't trust you, it, it doesn't matter if you have all the facts in the world if they aren't going to hear what you have to say. Um, you know, and I think part of that uh, is the I think part of that's a result of politics as a whole is changing. Uh, it's becoming more polarized. Uh, actually, it's not just politics, but whole um, you know all of society is becoming more polarized. You're seeing it in sports and music and everything's becoming um, more um, politically infused. Um, and so it's not entirely surprising that you're seeing, um, you know, as people, you know, kind of segregate themselves politically, that they're doing that with how they consume their news, um, uh, as well. But I think that really just underscores the need to have, you know, um, uh, honest. I guess just honest. Journalism, but an honest journalism that is able to reach people, and they, um, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people on 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 the right that are, not a lot of people, but there are are some very loud voices on the right that actively seek to undermine trust in the press. Uh, but the question is, I mean, it's, I mean, the r- reality is that people don't trust you. You know, it's, it's you can complain about it, you can, you can do whatever, but ultimately, like, the, the, the biggest question you have to be asking, I think that every journalist has to be asking themselves, is how can we win that trust back? Um, you know, and so, uh, I'm a bit... Bias in this, uh, as, as someone who writes for right-wing rag, uh, um, but you know, I think I think part of the solution is is to to really have honest journalism that focuses on particular audiences that aren't otherwise being reached, uh, because if you have people that don't trust Washington Post, which does excellent journalism, um, they reality is that they're going to look other places and so the question is where are they going to look and are those places going to have the same baseline facts uh, and so if they're going to alex jones um, or breitbart um, you know i can go on that's not really good, something that's good for Anybody except Alex Jones and Breitbart, um, and so I think ultimately the the, you know, the biggest question for the press is how can we get people to trust us, and how can we bring the facts to people, you know, not just report the facts, but to bring the facts to people who otherwise aren't being reached. I'll leave it there.
0: Before I open it up to questions from the audience, I just want to throw a couple questions out for your uh, thoughts. And Mm -hmm. one of them was provoked by something you just said, Peter, about I work for a right-wing rag. And so I think some, uh, some media outlets think of themselves as associated with either the right or the left, and some don't. And I want to ask you all your thoughts about one could think of journalism in two models. One is all media sources, uh, media outlets, think of themselves as apolitical, just trying to tell the truth. And admittedly, obviously, people are going to be inadvertently biased in ways they don't perceive, but they think of themselves that way. Or alternatively, uh, all media sources think of themselves as politically affiliated. It doesn't mean they make things up, but they more... more. uh, they embrace that, uh, that framing of their role in a more explicit way. Um, so I wanna ask you both, how do you conceive of your role and what do you think is the best layout for the media environment as a whole in, in terms of those two models? So,
1: Well, specific to layout, okay? Mm-hmm. One thing we realized at the Post is that people don't distinguish when they read a story or see a story between opinion analysis and perspective, okay? I, I like to say the Internet is flat. You can read on this end, the New York Times, and or get information from the New York Times, and on this end, you can get information from a Russian troll farm c- creating, you know, fake stories. Now, someone has to mediate that. So, at the Post, we have started to label stories very clearly, label columns and content. Um, People often called the the Washington Post a um, left-leaning organ of the Democratic Party. Interestingly, if you look at the major columnists for the Washington Post, the vast majority are Republicans. Um, Mike Gerson, Jennifer Rubin, George Will, Charlie uh, Krauthammer, uh, and I can go on. So people's perceptions are shaped, again, to take the card from Paige, right? Yes. Page. People's perceptions are ch- are shaped by their own perceptions. Uh, I mean, their perceptions of of a story shaped wholly by their own perceptions. Uh, that's a really important point. I don't know if that answers your question. Probably not. Um, but that's my view of it.
2: Others? Um, I actually have have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, you know, we used to have a slogan at HuffPost that we were beyond left and right, but if there's anyone here who thinks that HuffPost is affiliated with the right, I would love to talk to you after this panel. <laughs> uh, I totally recognize how we are perceived by people who read us. Um, that being said, I do think we try to hold people on both sides of the aisle and on every, you know, I hate that actually, I hate that phrase, both sides of the aisle, because Nothing is ever black and white. There are always different viewpoints on an issue, and I think that we really do try to hold people accountable, whether it's, you know, a Democratic senator. I mean, I'm from West Virginia, so I read a lot about Joe Manchin, and he has made some comments. He's, he's such a warrior in the um, opioid epidemic, and I appreciate a lot of the work he's doing, but he's made some comments in the past that I have even, I've found extremely questionable, and so we call him out on things like that, um, you know, and just as we'll call out Donald Trump. I mean, that's an obvious one, so... Um, But at the same time, I think um, the sort of the way we approach things at HuffPost are, I think we look at um, maybe sort of more issue focused. Uh, The example that's coming to my mind is a few years ago before um, the gay marriage ruling happened at the Supreme Court. Uh, As a publication, we decided that we were not, we were going to be in favor of, you know, everybody's marriages being legal, Um, you know, so in our writing, we decided to sort of drop the pretense of these are what people are saying. How, why gay marriage is a bad idea? Because we thought, as a, as a company, uh, you know, we were going to support this issue, and we didn't see anything controversial about that. You know what I mean? I know that there are a lot of people with religious beliefs who who are still against it, or or for whatever reason are still against gay marriage. But that was one example where we just sort of editorially were like, okay, we think this is a human issue. We think that. You know, there's no reason to explain. You know, gay marriage is bad because because we don't think it's bad. Um, so, 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 sort of on an issue-focused level, I think that we we are a little more, uh, you know, we, we will lean a little more strongly one way. Um, I think another one is uh, medical medical marijuana, like marijuana legalization. I'm picking the most like you know like out there topics. Um, uh, HuffPost has always sort of taken a stance. Uh, we we repeatedly published the story about how zero people have overdosed on marijuana. We actually just published this a few weeks ago because the Republican governor of Kentucky came out and said, marijuana's never going to be legal in my state because of all those overdoses in Colorado. And we were like, that's that's not a thing that happens. So, um, so and, and, and I can see, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, there's always going to be a, a portion of the population that wants to argue like, well, you know, if you eat too much of a thing, like someone might call poison control, whatever. Um, but I think that with with certain issues where it just seems like we try to take a common sense approach to things, um, that being said when it comes to things like tax reform you know we're not going to like take a specific side on that um, health care you know we try to remain unbiased and we want to report on things and sort of hold people accountable to make sure that lawmakers in particular are doing things that are productive for society as a whole and doing things that are not uh, not shady, you know, we, we, we advocate for open transparency and I think that's something that people on the right and people on the left are going to agree on, you know, across the board.
1: Anyone else want on that? Yeah, I mean, I,
5: look, mm-hmm. stories are, are politicized all, all the time and that's, it's hard to control, as, as this panel has, has pointed out in a lot of different ways, um, but the reporting itself, the act of reporting in its highest form is and should be apolitical. And, and in its highest form, it is a political. So, so that it, it, when it is about the accretion of fact, when it matters little to the reporter, or the editor where those facts point in the end, that process can and should be insulated um, from any kind of, of political bias, and it can be. You know, I mean, it's certainly the way I was brought up as a journalist. The, the people who I hold in the, in the highest regard were not polemicists, They didn't. Care. They weren't. Nor were they political. They simply didn't care. What mattered to them was getting to the underlying facts, and they worked tirelessly to get there. Now there are other there are other um, uh, modes of of and means of journalism, and it's important to have a robust opinion operation, and and um, as many news organizations do. Um, so. You know, to, but but the underlying reporting I think is is both um, testable as uh, whether it's neutral or not and and really can be in, it, in its ideal form uh.
6: so uh, I think I'd probably divide uh, the media landscape into, into three types I'd um, say you have uh, entirely political outlets um, that tend to be focused on a geographic audience, that that's who their target audience is, um, such as the, you know, the Washington Post, L- L- Los Angeles Times, um, and so on. Um, and then I, th- I think you have, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I think you have um, outlets that um, are engaged more in advocacy than in Informing uh, people, and so uh, you Breitbart um, or big uh, progress. Um, but I, I think that there's a space kind of in between, you know, those two, um, to have of right to inform um, a political demographic while still doing um, uh, objective. Um, objective reporting um, and so I mean that's I think that's probably where I where I'd, um, you know I think that's probably where I, where I aligned the daily caller more than uh, more than the uh, uh, advocating because um, again it comes uh, it comes down to trust and I think you have a lot of people who feel and believe that the stories aren't written for them um, yeah, you know, I think even if you you know you look at, um, you know, the the uh, the times stories, you know, that they you started to do more on you know, Trump voters, um, but you know I, I think you know Trump voters are still gonna like that story and, and know that it's story about them, but it's not story to them, um, and so I, I I think there is a build ground there to uh, you know on. Um, on the one hand, you know, practice, uh, uh, you know, objective reporting that, you know, gives your readers facts that they might not like. Um, You know, we, uh, um, a week after the Access Hollywood tape came out, we, um, you know, we ran a story uh, that did not look good on Trump that was um, basically, took a deep dive into his ties to um, Jeffrey Epstein, who's you know billionaire who's you know um, uh, had, um, basically who, who had been convicted of child sex abuse, and uh, so I think the headline was something like uh, Donald Trump's. Friendship with a billionaire pedophile that no one wants to talk about. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think, so while most people describe this as right wing, I think that there still is space there to be, you know, writing for an audience while still practicing honest journalism, still um, giving them facts that they, they need. Uh, but you know, at the same time, I, I think it also is um, very important to have uh, the entirely apolitical journalism. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the reporting in Puerto Rico, um, you know, th- those aren't you know, those are more of the kind of entirely apolitical outlets. And I, I think you know, when it comes to apolitical topics, I think that's where they're uh, I, th- I think that's where they're clear and far away' th- or the, uh, the best in the field. And so I, I think it's more when you get into the, uh, get into politics and cover politics um, that you need to make sure you find a way to reach everybody because there is that lack of trust. And so I think outlets are kind of right for uh, a political d- demographic, will still be honest with them. Um, I think are a good way to bridge that gap.
0: Thank you. So I have way more questions, but I want to open it up to the audience, um, as I'm sure you do too. So let me let me take questions from the audience. Uh, Darcy in the back. So Speak up if you're in the back, just because it might be hard to hear. Thank
2: you.
5: That's a great question. I mean, I mean the simple answer is is yes, but it depends. And it depends on on proportionality and it depends on presentation um but it it is you know there there have been examples, good examples of deep, well-told, seriously reported stories that appear in venues that might otherwise seem to be completely um biased by in their mission. Um uh, in, in terms of how to ensure that the, that the reporter is, is right and accurate and fair. I mean, that's sort of the beautiful, uh, raucous interplay that, that takes place um, in a newsroom where you're constantly probing whether the central thesis is right, whether you've considered the other point of view, whether the internal logic of the piece and the internal architecture holds up, and um, and that's a, that you know when practiced, um, practice in in, in its uh, in its full expression is goes a long way to to if not guaranteeing, uh, ensuring that a piece is is going to hold up. Um, uh, and you know the question is in, in in some of these outlets whether that apparatus exists um, and whether that piece of it is taken seriously so I mean you could see a place like CNN which went through its own scandal uh, this summer because one or two stories that were produced by the investigative team just evaporated um, and uh, were I think ultimately retracted at least in part retracted. That, Even at a good news organization like that, uh, uh, despite what people think about as political leanings, those problems could could take root.
0: Other questions? Yes, in the back. Um,
2: this is actually something I didn't personally write on this a lot but people at HuffPost uh, wrote on a lot I mean what you just described is called false equivalence and so it's basically to say that like it's just as bad but her emails you know that's just as bad as saying you know I I just kiss her I don't even ask you know what I mean like they're two very different things um and I think you know it I think in the moment like I'm I'm trying to like Obviously hindsight's 2020, and I think that everyone looks back on the coverage of the 2016 election and maybe thinks there were ways we could have done it better. Um, You know, I think in that moment, you know, you do wanna make sure you're covering every little bit of news. Uh, That being said, you know, I I think I personally tried to not equate the two. I mean, I think I'm, I'm working in a world where everything at HuffPost is on the internet. We don't have a print publication. You know, we don't have a TV show. So like you can write as many stories as you want and I think that was sort of the approach I personally took to it was if there was news about Clinton, I was definitely going to write that. I was definitely going to make our readers aware because I think that it's important to know as much as you can, especially in an election season. Um, I don't. I think that it was less of an issue for me to sort of compare the two, like I guess I'm going to call them scandals in this case, for lack of a better word. Um, because, you know, we, we weren't so much, not every story you write is like, here's Clinton and then here's Trump. Um, and so I think that for me, it was sort of, you know, you wanna make the readers aware, but at the same time, you, do, you don't really wanna equate uh, those two things. I think more, like it would be different to say, like looking at two answers in a debate, like that's definitely more of a time when I think it's fair to say like, this is what she said, this is what he said. Um, But as far as, I I think for me, like, I look at that and think about the amount of coverage and and sort of the the tone of it. Like, I don't think there was any time that we talked about the Access Hollywood tape where we were like, yeah, but then Clinton's doing this over here. And I think that's where I would have had questions and, yeah. Anyone else want
0: to comment on that?
1: You may recall that after
2: Access Hollywood came out and
1: um, it was an obvious story, big story, and, you know, Post got the scoop. Um, when it, when the debate followed, if I'm not mistaken, that's when Trump trotted out the, uh, the quote, victims of Bill Clinton's advances. So um, he was creating his own equivalency, in a way. Uh, and, we, and, of course, we covered it. Uh, any, anybody who complains about Donald Trump getting, you know, disproportionate coverage can call up Donald Trump because he he revels in it. He loves it. the um, the The disconnect between the press being his, you know, he describes the press as his enemy, the American people's enemy, you know, dishonest, whatever. He's always ginning up stories. You know, he does it every morning. So. Um, I, I don't know that that addresses your point, but I think we have to keep in mind that we had a candidate and now a president who loves publicity. Uh, he gives more press access than Obama did. Obama sat down with the, with the Washington Post exactly once in seven years. OK, I'm not saying tr- and, but tr- Trump calls up our political reporter. So we're doing great with Trump. Numbers are up. <laughs> It's substantially up, let me
5: say. Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, but I, I think that the rules are also shifting a little bit in the wake of this election, and that you're seeing maybe for the first time um, uh, a new brand of candor in the in some of the mainstream media. You know, calling out Trump on his lies is not something that you would have seen in the New York Times um, uh, prior, and and uh, um, and so whether that trend continues and whether it should is a really interesting question, but I think grows directly from some of the, some of the um, uh, equivalencies or false equivalencies that were made in the coverage and I think are subject of some real introspection now and, and uh, have led to some changing tactics.
6: Um, I mean, I, I think one of the problems, not one of the problems, one of the challenges Covering Trump is that uh, he tends to serve up a lot of opportunities for uh, like negative coverage. Um, be the best way to um, so you know I, th- I think during the election, I think at a certain point people kind of start to tune it out. Um, you know, uh, but you know, I, th- I think also if you go back and look at the numbers. Uh, it, coverage of of Trump was was still more uh, it was still more negative than it was with Clinton. Um, and so yeah, you know, I'm not I'm I, I'm not entirely sure how much of a from my perspective uh, how much of a false equivalence there was. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to draw uh, um uh, I'm not trying to, to draw a couple between the two issues, but um, I think the press had a, a, a tough job, and on the one hand, covering uh, the guy who's, who seems to invite negative coverage, and the candidate who, you know, uh, at the end of the day was, was under investigation, so you cannot cover it. Um, but you know, kinda, kinda is what is the plan to go forward.
0: Other questions? Derek.
7: I was wondering if you have a comment on what I perceive as one of the systemic challenges, which is, especially the, the new environment, the internet, and that many of your other-
1: Like I said, one of the things we want to do and have done is the transparency of labeling news versus commentary. Um, That probably helps a little bit. As far as people taking a breath, slowing down, and and, uh, making sure their coverage is complete and full, um, I I think that anybody who's in, in the business of journalism today has to have a much higher metabolism than they did, you know, t- t- ten years ago when the, the press, the deadline was 8 p.m. for the print edition. Um, the, the most important, one of the most important deadlines. Of course, we, we were on the web, but just not in the way we are now. Um, we have, as much as we've added uh, breaking news reporters, we've added investigative reporters. Uh, that's a great luxury. And these are the people who take months, you know, weeks, at least weeks, months, uh, to work on stories. And those stories, you know, as you talk about the highest form, Bob, of of rigorous reporting. um, The newspaper is a smorgasbord, so you're going to get, for example, in my career, I've covered two, uh, three hot wars, and the Oscars twice. Okay? It's honest-to-God truth. And um, you get to do things uh, across the spectrum. And people can find my Oscars coverage and they can find my Iraq coverage. Um, and I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't know how to read a newspaper anymore um, because I'm a you know, journalist, I've been steeped in it so long. Um, but what, what Paige pointed out is really the fundamental issue of narrative, which is. There's three p- parts of it. One is we start with the facts, OK? The, re- the true facts as we can determine them. The second is how I decide to arrange them. And the third is how the reader reads them. Sure, all of us had the experience of writing a story that a reader uh, then calls you about and, said, and find, found something in the 30th paragraph that was, in fact, the real story. And you missed it. Um, so i don't know that that uh, that gets to your question, but it 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 is a very, very difficult challenge uh every day to 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 not let reporting be overwhelmed by the need for speed yeah, I
5: feel like there are two separate questions here one about the just the news cycle itself and the the incredible volume that will pass through social media, for example, on any given day it is. There's never been anything like it, uh, to put it simply. And I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. I mean, the, it's led to, uh, and I don't think we've taken its full measure yet on what, it, what its meaning is about the quality of the news um, overall. But it's led to almost an addiction uh, to the news. And, and I know this from people who are not practitioners who are just readers. And who are literally just waiting for the next big story to drop? That's not a phenomenon li- limited to journalists. I mean, there was a period, going back a few months ago, where, where it seemed like every single night at five o'clock, the New York Times or the Washington Post, primarily, were dropping these incredibly heated stories about the various investigations of Russian meddling and potential collusion going on, which we haven't touched on in this panel. And and there's just insatiable appetite, and and as a result, there's also um, what seems to be an endless supply that doesn't always present the fullest picture. Then I think you're raising a separate question about bias, which I'm not sure w- how and you're encountering it, particularly in this in this daily um, news flow. Maybe you could say another word or two about that. So I, mean, I think that's a very fair observation too, and that what what has happened is that news organizations um or news purveyors have learned just how to stoke this and it's often it often exploits the most sensationalist elements and and doesn't require much thought or even reporting at all. So it's become very easy and cheap to simply barrage um uh you know, social media with with the latest fragment. Um, so I, I, I don't know what the answer is to that, um, as long as, as those clicks and page views remain central to to, um, to the evolving business model.
0: Other than turn over to you guys, can I just get one or two yeah. other questions from the media, and then you can respond kind of in, I mean, not from the media, from the audience. And then you can respond kind of to the group of them, because we're running time. <laughs> yes. I'll, t- I'll take two or three, and then let everyone respond. Go ahead.
7: Uh,
2: I guess you wanted we also see an
1: increase in young people who in becoming journalists. And if so, uh, are you at all concerned about people being trained in this environment? Like, someone mentioned that know so many stories are in the last five hours that seem to be most attractive to writing. Are you worried that maybe investigative
0: journalism could just hold that voice on it? Great question. I'm going to take three of them and let everyone respond. Yes, gentlemen, right here.
6: and <laughs> <Please. laughs> <Please. laughs> <Please. laughs>
0: And then I saw a hand over here. Yes, Darcy. Oh, I mean not Darcy Kendall. <laughs> I already got Darcy. Peter and let everyone have something to say about each of this okay. and that will mm-hmm.
6: make our way around. Um, first question was young people in journalism. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't have any hard numbers, uh, but, uh, I get with, with, I think would be yes. Um, I think especially in this social media age, um, I think people get uh, p- people like to be a source of information, uh, and being a journalist, uh, basically being at the, the top of the totem pole. Um, as First, as, uh, so I I would expect yeah I think you you will see more young people get involved in journalism. Um, I think as far as should journalists vote, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like I, th- I don't think there's any reason for them uh, to, to prohibit journals from from voting as long as they can keep it separate from their work. Uh, if they should or should not vote is you know, up, up to them in any given election. Uh, as far as m- mistakes in 2016, I think. Uh, you know, just across the board. Uh, I think you know journalists really missed what was going on in the country. I think um, part of that was very much uh, a problem. Bubbles um, that uh, journalists tend to write their stories for, or the, the temptation for, for a lot of journalists is to write their stories for other j- journalists. Um, so yeah, you know, I think. Going forward into um, 2018 and 2020 i think uh you know, one thing that we've we, we been trying to do more of and, and you know, a lot of um organizations are trying to do more of is uh is to really get back in touch with um you know with your uh, you know blue collar voter and uh you know just kind of to, to really get back and. what is going on. Makes sense.
2: Yeah. Um, so about the young journalist question, um, I know I joked at the beginning of this panel that some people think my journalism degrees were a waste of time, but like I actually have had a lot of people, um, students approach me about like, you know, just with general questions and I do encourage every one of them to get the proper training, You know, uh, you know, there's a right way to write a story, there's a right way to like source build and things like that. Um, to sort of vet things as true or not and, you know, determine, like, what is uh, authentic and what should be reported. So, I have encouraged a lot of people to do that. I think uh, a lot of the, I'm not so much worried about journalists being trained in this environment because I actually think this is an exciting time to be a journalist. Like, I keep telling my husband, I think I'm going to, like, look back on this one day and be like, all right, this was, I learned so much. I'm still, I'm learning, you know, during this period of time. Um, so I think it's great that um, if younger journalists, student journalists, are coming up at this time, uh, I do encourage everyone to have a thick skin because I feel like, you know, when your president is regularly reminding Americans that he thinks the news is malicious and fake, it's it can be a hard uh, career, um, an emotionally trying career, but no, I think it's great if young people want to do journalism, like, uh, I think this is a good time to really be getting into it. Um, to the question if journalists can vote, yes. <laughs> I pay taxes just like everyone else. Sorry, not, <laughs> not, not, not can of course they can. Should they? vote yeah, I mean, yeah, I want to have a say in what my community leaders are doing. And I mean, I think a lot of, um, I mean, I don't mean to imply that your question was geared this way, but we're not just voting on the president; like we're voting on our mayors and our local officials. And I really think that change when it comes to politicians, like the local level, is where it's at. You know what I mean? Like obviously, what Trump is doing has an impact on everyone's day-to-day lives, and in Congress as well. But you know, when I go to cast a vote, I'm not just voting for those people. I'm voting for local people, too. So, yeah, I think journalists should be able should vote, should. And they are able to vote. Um, and as far as 2020 goes, one thing, um, oh, yeah, we definitely had like a sort of come to Jesus moment at Post <laughs> after 2016. Um, you know we have drastically re-examined our polling operation um we got it vastly wrong and we acknowledged right away that we got it vastly wrong in 2016. i actually have a our polling editor um doesn't work with us full time anymore but i really respected the way she handled the week after the election, which was probably the worst week of her life (laughs) thus far, Um, just really acknowledging that she did it wrong and and here's how we're going to improve going forward and the way we're going to change the way our polling models work. Um, In addition to that, like, uh, this isn't even so much a political thing, but we've really just dispatched a lot more reporters in the last year to, like, if there's a story breaking, I mean, um, we had a couple of reporters in Charlottesville, you know, when, um, those uh, protests were happening. We've sent reporters to you know, Florida. We had someone in Gainesville this week to cover a Richard Spencer thing. We, we've had reporters you know, uh, covering the wildfires in California. And I mean, I know that the like, wildfires in itself is not inherently a political issue on the surface, but I think that so helps to just have people physically there where news is happening, talking to you know, Americans you know, that are directly affected by that stuff. Um, I think it's strengthened our coverage. Obviously, like, you can always do better, and we're going to keep talking about it you know, for 2018 and 2020 and beyond, um, but those are sort of baby steps we've taken to sort of change in the last year.
0: So we only ha- uh, we're actually at our breaking time, so I'm just going to ask you to say something briefly, each of you, because we need to give the audience a break before the next session.
5: All right, well, very quickly, just uh, the Watergate analogy is appropriate when when it comes to young journalists and and prospects. Um, in that, anecdotally, at least, journalism schools, the highest growth areas in them are is is for invis- investigative journal- journalists. I think that this is a galvanizing time. This is a time where people are re-examining their relationship to. Uh, the body politic and to governance, and want to get involved. Want to get involved as journalists. So to me, that's one of the more hopeful, one of the, the more hopeful signs. Though I think we have to think really hard about where are they going to work and how do we ensure that um, that those jobs exist, which is not going to be uh, an easy challenge in the years to come.
1: Rich, um, I have uh, classes of uh, undergraduates every semester. In journalism and at George Washington University. And the first thing I say is um, if you want to be liked, turn around and leave now. Because it's not a journalist's job to be liked, Um, it's to get at the truth. Um, So that's what I'll leave you with.
0: So I want to thank all of our panelists. It was really a fantastic and interesting panel. And before we all clap for them, I also want to let you know that there's a 15 minute break and then at 12 o'clock so slightly less than 15 minutes we'll have our second panel this one was journalists in the field and the second one is uh, people who study about the media so I hope you'll come back after the break at 12 o'clock to hear the second panel so thank you to a fabulous fabulous group of journalists